God, we love your word and we're thankful for it. And we're thankful even for the parts that are stories, for the way that it tells us how you work in the real world. We look at a book like Kings and we see a world that looks a lot like our own. And we see that you are not a fake God who lives in a fairy tale world where pumpkins turn into carriages, but you are a real God who lives and works in a world just like ours, always accomplishing your purposes. We thank you for this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 11, starting in the first verse. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. <clears throat> you know, it's good for us, especially after four weeks out of the book of Kings, it's good for us to be reminded of, of where we've been, where we are, and where we're going before we seek to get to wherever it is that we are going. And so we, we find ourselves here in the, in the heart and soul, so to speak, of the book of Kings, we, we find ourselves in a very perilous time in the life of the people of God. Because the king is dead. Not only is the king dead, but all of his brothers had been killed before him. And shortly after he had been killed, a good chunk of the rest of his family had been killed as well. The king who is dead was King Ahaziah. And he was the king of Judah. And he had been killed because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was there with the wrong people. Ahaziah had made himself friends with wicked King Joram, who was king of Israel. Ahaziah in the south, Joram in the north, and he had made himself friends as well with wickeder Jezebel, who was Joram's mother. And so when King Jehu arises to put Joram and Jezebel to death so that he can be king, Ahaziah is found there together with Joram and Jezebel. And so, to top it off, Jehu decides he's going to put Ahaziah to death as well. And then a number of people from Ahaziah's family come, not having any idea whatsoever what's going on with Jehu, and he decides to put all of them to death for good measure as well. And so when we come into the passage here in 2 Kings 11, we see that there are very precious few members of David's family who are still alive. There are especially very precious few male heirs in David's family who would be able to sit on his throne and make a legitimate claim to his throne. And so, when we come to this passage, we see there's a very, a very slim number of potential heirs to the throne of the nation of Judah. And then when we come into verse 1 as we are, we see that even those who are left are being put to death. And they're being put to death by wicked queen Athaliah. Now it would be good for us to remember how Athaliah enters into the picture. Athaliah was the daughter of King Ahab, that's King Ahab of the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. And she was almost certainly the daughter of King Ahab by his wife Jezebel. Now the text does not explicitly say that she's the daughter of Jezebel, and kings, as you are probably aware, had more than one wife. But the family resemblances are so strong that it seems very likely that the author intends for us to see that it's a, a like mother, like daughter situation. 
So Athaliah is the son of King Ahab during the time of King Jehoshaphat, who was king of Judah. Ahab in the north, Jehoshaphat in the south. And they decide to set aside their petty differences for a little while and to become allies to fight common enemies. And so to seal this alliance, Jehoshaphat gives his son Joram to be married to Athaliah, daughter of Ahab. So Athaliah from the north marries Joram from the south, and together they have little baby Ahaziah, who succeeds his father Joram as king. And so they created this, this marriage alliance, and for the time being it worked. But now Jehoshaphat is dead, Joram is dead, and Ahaziah is dead. Ahaziah has no brothers of age who can become king because they've all been killed, and all of his sons are underage, not yet of the age to become king. And so when we come into verse 1, we have a power vacuum. And the question is, who is going to fill it? And Athaliah decides that it is going to be her. Look at me, look with me rather at verse 1 again. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Now, how can this be? I mean, this is disgusting. You have to recognize that Ahaziah's sons are Athaliah's grandsons. And so when Athaliah begins to put to death the whole royal family, she's killing off her own grandsons. That's a disgusting thing, but what you can recognize about people very quickly is that people are disgusting, especially when there is power involved. And so in order to gain this power for herself, she begins to put to death the entire royal family. It's disgusting, but it's even more saddening and alarming than it is disgusting because, if you recall, the whole book of Kings, First and Second Kings, the whole book of Kings is a search or a quest. It's a working out of a promise of God. And it's good for us to step back sometimes and to remember what it is that we are studying and what the bigger context of a passage is. Because when we go through the individual stories, it can become very easy to lose the big picture. And so I've said it before, and I'll, I'll say it again, what we're, what we're looking for here is David's promised son. The whole book of Kings works on the promise that God had given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God honors David with a promise. See, David has it in his heart that he's going to build a house for the Lord. David wants to build a temple. David has subdued his enemies all around him. He finally has some semblance of peace. And so he decides, I'm going to build a house for God. I have my own house. It's time for God to have a house. The issue being that God doesn't have it in his heart for David to build him a house. Even though it was right for David to think so and to desire to do so, it wasn't the right time. And so God comes to David and he says, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But I'm not going to build you a house of stone and brick and mortar. I'm going to build you a house of kings. I'm going to build you a dynasty. In fact, I'm going to give you a house, a dynasty that endures forever with an eternal king. And we can read just a, a portion of this promise going back to 2 Samuel 7 verses 12, 13, and 16. 
There the Lord said to David, When your days are fulfilled, and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so all through the book of Kings, we're looking for this king. We're looking for the king who, as the psalmist says, is going to be David's lamp. Or when Jesus comes, who is this king, he says, I am the light of the world. We're looking for this eternal king who is going to reign over this eternal kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. So every time we come to a new king, especially kings who are from David's line, we ask ourselves, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? We don't know what his name is going to be, but we do know where he's going to come from. It's going to come from David. Psalm 132 again says, The Lord swore to David an oath, a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. That's what makes this all so sad, so terrifying. Athaliah is putting to death all the sons from David's body. Athaliah has declared war on the promise of God. She's declared war against the covenant of God. Just like when Cain kills Abel and attacks the promise of God, so too here, Athaliah declares war on God's promise. And so she's going, and as we read in the text, she's going to put the whole royal family to death. But we have to go back a little ways and ask ourselves again, how does Athaliah, daughter of Ahab, come into position to be able to put all of David's sons to death? How do we get to this point? I mean, I mean, here we are, but how does it get to this, to this wicked, terrible, dangerous place? And it all goes back three generations to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, who was a pretty good king, even gets pretty high marks from the author of the Scriptures, but he made one critical error. Jehoshaphat became a pragmatist. He decided, even if just for a moment, that he would set aside the word of the Lord because he knew better than God. And so instead of trusting God and God's Spirit to defend His kingdom and to build His nation, instead of trusting God, he begins to trust in himself and he trusts in Ahab. And so he marries his son off to Ahab's daughter, bringing Ahab's house and bringing Athaliah into the kingdom of Judah and putting her in a spot where eventually she would be able to begin putting to death all of his great-grandsons, one after another. The dangerous thing, the scary thing about this, is that pragmatism is no less a danger for us today as it was for Jehoshaphat in his day. It's very easy for us to set aside the word of the Lord and to think that somehow we know better. And you can look around and you can see this in the church all kinds of places. You can pick out any number of different, different ways of thinking. You, you can listen to those who say, you know, to be effective evangelists, we need to be in the world. To be effective evangelists, 
We need to be able to speak the language of the culture and we have to be able to know all the same shows as the culture and be able to make all the same music references as the culture. We need to be like other people so we can reach other people. But what does the Word of the Lord say? Let have nothing to do with impurity. Do we trust that God can build His church even if we look different from the world? Isn't that how God has always built His church? Or you can look at church itself. You can look at our worship services, not perhaps ours, but the worship services as they go on throughout evangelicalism in the United States today. Worship is entertaining, not holy. It's a show. We have to compete with the television. We have to compete with the entertainment. We have to compete with the concerts. Compete with whatever it is that entertains a Twitter, a Twitter generation. Instead of having a service that looks like an encounter with the holy... We have a service that looks like a concert. Instead of having something that, that is a, a, an encounter with the makers of the heaven and the earth, we decide it needs to feel like a family reunion where we're, where we're chums and we're all buds and everything is just low and down to earth. Instead of coming into a holy, reverent presence of God, we come as though it's nothing to come. We have songs ripe with emotions and starved of depth and our our sanctuaries are full of lasers and smoke but empty of awe and wonder and why is this because we don't trust god because we don't trust that god will build his word with preaching build his church with preaching and the word and his spirit instead we play choruses behind the pastor while he preaches so that people's emotions will be manipulated into making decisions for Christ. But that's not how it works. You can't, you can't manipulate someone's emotion into being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must work. We can make the same mistake that Jehoshaphat made by thinking that somehow we can do this on our own, in our own ways. When the truth is, we must trust God in His way. John Piper, it was a really interesting interview back in 2013. He did an interview with D.A. Carson, who's a scholar at Trinity Divinity School up in Deerfield. And towards the end of the interview, they were asked, What's, what are the biggest challenges facing the evangelical church in the United States in the next 20 years? This was six years ago, so this falls into our time. And one of the final answers that John Piper gave was this. One of the greatest challenges, one of the greatest questions facing evangelical churches is whether or not the ethos of rock-oriented worship can sustain the gravitas of the glory of God over the long haul. It's very difficult to maintain a sense of the bigness and majesty of God if everything about the service is calculated to be chummy and close and warm and touchy and feely. Worship times get so dumbed down that the weight of hell and the horror of judgment and the glory of the cross don't fit there. People lose their capacity for awe. If you don't preach the whole counsel of God and call sin, sin, because you want people to come and you're afraid they won't come if you tell them the whole truth, People lose their capacity for awe at the cross. 
And if they don't see the cross in all of its awesome terror and glory, then they haven't seen Christ. And then they lose the fear of the Lord. And then we lose wisdom. And we lose the ability to hand the gospel of salvation from God's wrath by God's grace through faith in God's risen Son down to our children and their children and their children's children. Just like we see here in 2 Kings 11. If you recall back to the Ten Commandments which we just read from, you go back into Deuteronomy chapter 5. We read this, I the Lord your God am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what we see here. We see down to the third generation. And we see the third generation of Jehoshaphat's descendants. And what are they doing? But they're reaping the harvest of destruction from Jehoshaphat's sinful pragmatic faithlessness. Consider what the weightiness of this is. If all of Ahaziah's sons are killed, and all the sons of David's body are killed, then there is no hope. If there are no more sons of David alive, then the promise of God has failed. And if even the promise of God has failed, then all is lost. But the story doesn't end there. Neither does the commandment. Visiting the iniquity of the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, but the Lord says, and showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And where did this all begin? But it began with David. And David, for all of his failures and foibles, David loved the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. And so God had promised that he would show love to a thousand generations, and that's exactly what he's doing. In spite of David's, in spite of David's failures, in spite of Jehoshaphat's failures, and Ahaziah's failures, God's grace is going to truck through for yet one more generation. Look at verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah, so he was not killed. Athaliah sets out to put the whole royal family to death. And when you look at that, it's terrifying. It sends the shiver down the spine. How is this going to work out? And then you come into verse 2, and it says, but. But. She's going to kill the whole family, but. Praise God for big buts. It's a very unfortunate part of our language that the word but has uh, two different words, one with two T's and one with one T, and they mean very different things, but they sound the same. Okay, one is for your backside, and one is a conjunction. And we need to be able to celebrate the big butts of the Bible, understanding that that can be a little uncomfortable for us. But this is a big but, isn't it? But, she's going to put the whole family to death. But, not this one. But this one aunt, seeing all the sons about to be killed, sneaks in, 
takes little Joash and steals him away. Athaliah wanted to kill them all, and she very nearly did. But she didn't get them all. She missed one. And one was all it took to keep God's promise going for one more generation. And Jehoshaphat is a one-and-done character in the Bible. She shows up, saves the day, and then she's gone. And she's a relatively anonymous character in the Bible. But God uses this sister of the king, an aunt to the king, uses her as an instrument of his redemption. She comes in, saves the day. She's a hero. Or we might say more appropriately, she's a, she's a heroine. But she's not the hero, is she? Because when we read in the text, in the very first two words of verse 2, when we read in the text, but Jehoshaphat, we should hear echoing even more loudly and more clearly in the background, but God. But God keeps His promise yet one more time. Athaliah wanted to kill them all, but God saved this one. But God kept His promise to David. And think of all the buts of God in the Bible. Adam sins. He's hiding naked and ashamed. And God had promised him death. But God comes with a promise of a Savior. And God had in mind to wipe out the entire earth in a flood. What do we read in Genesis 6, verse 8? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God promised, God promised Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him, even though he had no son. But God comes and opens Sarah's womb, and she conceives and bears a son, Isaac. And then God requires Abraham to go up to a mountain and sacrifice. And when we get up there, we read this from Genesis 22. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. But, 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 you come to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and Jacob has his 12 sons, and the 11 who are left with Jacob are in Israel, and they're starving to death in the famine. And so they go down into Egypt, and there what happens? They need to be sustained, but it's a strange and foreign land, a dangerous place. But who was there? Joseph was already there by God's providence, sold into slavery by his brothers, but God raises him to position to save his brothers. And then later on, 400 years later, the Israelites are in slavery. They escape with Moses, but they're pinned between the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other, and they're facing destruction, but God opens up the Red Sea and they walk through. Again and again and again and again, the promise of God seems to hang by a thread. But every time, God comes through and saves and ensures that His promise is kept. And right here, in the very heart of the book of Kings, this one little baby, Joash, makes all the difference in the universe. But he wasn't the first baby to be in that position, and he wouldn't be the last either. You go back to the time of the Israelites in Egypt. Pharaoh saw that the Hebrews were becoming too many. And so what did he say? He said, throw all the baby boys into the river. Drown them. And what do we read? But Moses' mother saw that he was beautiful. 
and hid him. And he was raised in Pharaoh's own home. The Savior, raised in Egypt. And then you go on later, and we see a very similar situation. The, the wise men, they come to meet with Jesus and his parents. And when they leave, after having, bringing, having brought their gifts, they go and they tell Herod that they have found a king, a son of David who has been born. And Herod doesn't want there to be another king, and so he sends off the troops. Go kill all the boys two years old and under. But the angel came to Joseph in a dream, warns him, and he flees, ironically, of all places to Egypt. And the child is saved. All the baby boys to be killed, Moses, Joash, and Jesus. In each case, God saves his people. This one little baby, in this one little verse, are a big part of God's big plan to crush Satan and save his people. God's promise survives and thrives for just one more generation because God has saved Joash. Then look with me at verse 3. He, Joash, remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. You know, it's a really good thing if you're playing hide-and-seek to find a good hiding spot. Uh, four years ago today, actually, I just saw this morning, four years ago today, we were off with the youth group on a trip where I didn't break myself. We were off in the youth group in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and we played, we played hide-and-seek. And there was this really, really fun little cabinet behind the organ loft that had three little spots in it, and we squeezed ourselves into that spot. Nobody could find us. It's very good to have a good hiding spot if you're playing hide-and-seek. But you know what's even better than having a good hiding spot? If people don't know that you're hiding at all and don't know that they're supposed to be looking for you. And that's what it was with Joash. Nobody knew that he was missing. Nobody knew that he had been overlooked. Athaliah didn't know she should be searching to find him and kill him. And so off he is, hiding with his nurse for six years in a side room in the temple. But six years is a long time. I've got this thing on for six to eight weeks. It's only been one, and it feels like forever. Six years is a very long time. Especially when it seems like you have no hope. What do you think went through the minds of the faithful Jewish people for those six years when Athaliah seemed to be queen? This isn't how it's supposed to go. All of David's sons are dead. God's promise seems to have been broken. It wasn't really broken. We know that. But they couldn't see that. They couldn't see God keeping his word. All they saw was wicked Athaliah sitting on David's throne, putting David's sons to death, persecuting the righteous, and building temples to disgusting false gods all over the promised Holy Land. That's all they could see. 
But what they could see didn't match up with reality, did it? The reality is that Athaliah is not really the queen, and that's a very subtle point that we shouldn't miss. Every king in the book of Kings gets an intro and an outro. They get introduced, whose son they are, they get a little bit about them if they're lucky, and then at the end it tells them how long they reigned, and who di- and they died, and then the next person becomes king. You get an intro and an outro. Every king, Athaliah gets neither. And the very clear point from the author, very subtle point, is that Athaliah is never really queen. She's an imposter. She might sit on the throne, and she might give orders, but she's not a queen. Because to rule over Judah, you have to be a son of David, and she's neither a son, nor is she of David. And so she's a tyrannical, murderous imposter, but she is not a queen. It seems like she's queen. But for all six years when Joash is in hiding, Joash is king. But for the average Joe Schmo Israelite, it doesn't look like that. It looks like Athaliah is queen, and God's promise is broken. But if they maintained their faith, was it reasonable? Would it have been reasonable when all of David's sons were killed and piled and buried? Would it have been reasonable for them to believe God even then? Well, yes, of course. Why is that? Because faith in God is always reasonable. God has a very, very, very good, pristine, impeccable track record of keeping His promises. And he can be trusted even when it does not seem as though he is keeping his promises. In fact, I I intentionally overstated the danger that the promise was in. Because let's hypothesize just for a moment, and let's say that even Joash is killed. And even Joash is among the, the bodies of David's sons, which were heaped up after they had been slain. Let's say that all the sons of David's body were killed. Were even then, would even then, would the promise be broken? But isn't God the one who can raise the dead? Isn't he the one who through Elijah and Elisha has already raised the dead? And isn't it true that David's true son, later on Jesus the Christ, the King of Kings, wouldn't it be true that he would one day be dead, but God raised him from the dead? In fact, when Jesus lays in the grave, it seems as though God's promise has been broken and it seems as though it is God's greatest defeat. But the opposite is true. God's promise has been kept and it is only a part of God's greatest defeat victory. We are fools when we take for granted that all we see is all there is and dismiss that God is working in ways which we cannot see. And that brings us to two very simple, strongly related points from the text, which is that God always saves by grace. And God saves and makes promise to, to save because of who he is. We see that so plainly in the scriptures. God gives a promise to Adam, not because Adam was worthy. Adam is naked and ashamed because he wants to. He saves Joash, not because Jehoshaphat was worthy, but because he wanted to save. Because he wanted to keep 
his promise. So it is with us, isn't it? God saves us not because we're worthy, not because we're lovely. Quite the opposite is true. Certainly didn't save the Apostle Paul because he was lovely. Paul says that he is the the chief of sinners. No, instead, like the Apostle says again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But perhaps the most beautiful but in all of what Paul writes in his in his letters comes to us from my favorite passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not just sinners, dead sinners. And not just sinners, but Satan-following sinners. Sinners who follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. Not just sinners, but children of wrath. Dead, Satan-following children of wrath. That's not a very pretty picture. That's who we were. But, But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive with Christ. And how does the Apostle say, it is by grace you have been saved. Why? Because God wanted to. And that's the best of the best news. If God saved because of something in you, you could lose it. But if God saves because He wants to, He's a God who never changes His mind. And He won't unwant to. Praise God for the but of the Gospel. It leads to eternal life, but why? Why does God want to save? We spent some time a couple weeks ago. We were off in Utah, and it was a beautiful place. We had a good trip. I'm looking forward for the kids to be able to tell you about it themselves a little bit, but It was a beautiful time, and we studied there the seventh question and answer of the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and the question is, what is God? You might take issue with the wording. You might say the question should be, who is God? You're wrong. The question is rightly phrased, what is God? And we can talk about that some other time. But the question is, what is God? And you'd have been proud of the kids. They memorized the question and the answer. They worked to, even more importantly, internalize the truth from the Scripture that the catechism is based on. But the question goes like this. What is God? God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Most merciful most gracious, long-suffering, patient, and abundant in goodness and truth. 
Wasn't he good to Joash? Stealing him away. While all the rest perished, he lived. And wasn't he good to Judah and to David? Keeping the promise alive for one more generation. And hasn't he been good to us? Bringing the long-awaited Savior. Raising him from the dead. And giving us eternal life through him. God is good. And because he is good, he does good. And he has been good. Very good. Very gracious to us. Let's pray. God, it's so easy to blow by such small words like but. It's easy to read through short few verses. It's easy to read through a short few verses and just miss the fact that everything hangs by a thread. But we know that the threads of the gospel are golden threads that can never be severed. That you'll always keep your promise even when it means raising the dead. And we thank you that even though David and Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah were all worthy of being discarded, yet you wanted to save and to show grace. And we thank you that even though we are worthy of being discarded, even worse, we are worthy of being condemned to an eternity of judgment in hell, that you have not left us in that, but that you have made us alive together with Christ. You have saved us by your grace. And you are the one who is worthy of all our praise because you are the one who is fully abundant in goodness and in truth. And so we pray as those who have received your mercy your grace and your goodness, you would put praise on our lips and at the forefront of our minds that our lives would be lived for you and for your glory. Amen.